Coming up on the Keto Cam Podcast, we welcome Rob Wolf. You know, when you start eating hot food, you just want to eat more of the hot food. Well, the way that this breaks up, it's like one's kind of marginally like, ah, that was okay. But man, I wonder what the next one is. And it gets this anticipatory thing going on with dopamine. And so it really makes it remarkably addictive. And it was just fascinating that this topic is really well understood within, say, like food manufacturers. Like they get evolutionary psychology. They get the neuroregulation of appetite. None of this stuff is controversial within these circles. Like they seem to be really well steeped in it. But if you went to... 99 dietitians out of 100, 99 physicians out of 100 mentioned this stuff, they would look at you like you had six heads. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I wanna thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, thank you for pressing play today on the Keto Camp Podcast. Whether you're driving to work, driving home from work, exercising, washing dishes, thank you. We are so grateful you continue to press play. Today, we have a legend in the space of health. His name is Rob Wolf. He's the best selling author of The Paleo Solution, Wired to Eat, and he's got a top ranked iTunes podcast as well. On today's episode, we dive into Rob's story, why he got started on this health journey and how he opened up one of the first CrossFit gyms in the world and what he did to overcome health challenges, some of the things he's experimented with and the solutions and why the paleo diet was such a savior for him and for so many people. We talk about keto and some of the troubleshooting things you can do if you're having a hard time on keto Rob Wolf explains why, hint, it has to do with an electrolyte imbalance and the fact that so many people can't break down the fat they're eating. We also provide the solution. We talk about the relationship between keeping your electrolytes up and putting your sugar cravings at bay. We talk about their product, Element, L-M-N-T, which is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need, with the proper balance of the ideal ratios of 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium, which is ideal for those doing keto, paleo, and heck, even somebody who's not doing that. We talk about overdoing it with electrolytes, how that could be an issue, but it's pretty rare. We talk about scientists that are out there hired by big food companies, these Franken-food companies that are masterful at crafting food products that are hyper palatable, meaning they are paid 
to test foods out to make it as addictive as possible. He's going to share about Doritos, the Dorito roulette product, and exactly how it's engineered to make somebody absolutely addicted to that chip. That's going to blow your mind. It was such a great conversation. We talk about his seven-day carb test. Everybody's different. Everybody has a different response to different foods, and he gives a seven-day protocol to help you kind of customize if the foods you're eating are working for you or against you. We discuss intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating. What are the pros? What are the cons? What are some of the ways to do it the right way? And so much more. So before I bring Rob Wolf onto the show, I do want to take a minute here to get to the Apple Podcast rating and review of the day. This is a five-star review from Mental Fuzz titled Keto Camp. Ben has a real passion for helping people live a healthy lifestyle. He explains stuff in an easy-to-understand delivery that is both personal and informative. Oh, Mental Fuzz, thank you so much. I'm glad that you are relating with my personality and are enjoying the information on the show. I appreciate you pressing play and taking the time to leave that rating and review. It really helps the show grow. We put a lot of resources and energy and money into the show to make sure we release two to three episodes per week. So just leaving a review helps out big time. If you have not left the Keto Camp Podcast a rating or a review yet on Apple Podcasts, please do so right now. And when you do, take a screenshot of your rating and review. Email us, support at ketocamp.com, camp with the K, support at ketocamp.com. With that screenshot, we will reply with a PDF download of our KetoFlex cookbook, which has 21 delicious keto fat-burning recipes. You'll get that for free just for leaving the show an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. A few times per year... Me and the Keto Camp team launch a seven-day keto challenge. It's free. We bring on different speakers. The last one we did was a complete hit. And we officially have the dates for the next one and our confirmed speakers. So I'm going to announce that right now on today's show. You ready? So the next Keto Kickstart Challenge is going to take place. April 10th, Monday, April 10th, and it's going to run all the way until April 17th, the following Monday. Seven days in a row, seven sessions. Each session is about two hours each. Here are the confirmed speakers. Are you ready for this? Our first confirmed speaker is Dr. Jason Fung, the legend, the father of fasting. (laughs) medical doctor who has written great books like The Obesity Code, The Cancer Code, The PCOS Plan. He's a New York Times bestselling author. I don't really have to give his bio. You know who he is. He's a legend, and he is a confirmed speaker for our challenge. We also have Dr. Ken Berry, medical doctor, the Mr. Proper Human Diet himself. He is a confirmed speaker as well. And then we have Dr. Annette Boss. You probably follow her on her wonderful YouTube channel, Dr. Boz. She's going to be on the challenge. We have some other other special guests too that I'm not going to announce. But those are the, th- the three confirmed that I'll share with you today. We are also going to be giving away over $10,000 in free prizes from supplements to a one-year membership to our signature course, the Keto Camp Academy, to exogenous ketones, and a lot of stuff. The challenge is completely free. All you need to do is head over to Keto Camp 
campbellwithak.challenge.com. Remember, camp is spelled with a K. KetoCampChallenge.com. You can see the details and then sign up. There is an option to upgrade your membership, and uh, you can do that if you want. But if not, it's completely free. Seven days. We'll take a deep dive together. We'll drop that link down below as well. I am so pumped up. This is going to be our best one yet, by the way. Okay, let's have an awesome conversation with Rob Wolf. Rob Wolf, a former research biochemist, is the two times New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling author of The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. Rob has transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world via his top-ranked iTunes podcast, books, and seminars. Rob has functioned as a review editor for the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism and as a consultant for the Naval Special Warfare Resiliency Program. He serves on the board of directors and advisors for Specialty Health Incorporated, the Chickasaw Nation's Unconquered Life Initiative, and a number of innovative startups with a focus on health and sustainability. Rob holds a purple belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and is a former California state powerlifting champion with a 565-pound squat, 345-pound bench, and 565-pound deadlift, and is a 6-0 amateur kickboxer. Here's Rob Wolf. Rob Wolf, welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast, my friend. Huge honor to be here. Thanks for having me. You are somebody I admire very much. Your work has really been a huge inspiration for me. You've got three books that I've read and continue to go back to and study. And uh, also, by the way, I don't think you know this, but I used to own a CrossFit gym here in Miami a few years ago. Oh, so, of okay. course, everybody in the, in the space is talking about Rob Wolf in the CrossFit space because you kind of brought paleo to the forefront of CrossFitters and to the world, essentially. So I want to start right here, Rob. Where did you get started with this health journey? And how did that end up writing three books that are changing so many lives? It's interesting looking back at this and trying to really delineate truly like influential points in one's life. I'm going to be 50 in January. So you start getting some of that, like, you know, what led to this and what led to that. And growing up, where I did, both of my parents were, were great people, but, you know, from literally a different era and both of them smoked, both of them drank. My mom had a, a lot of health problems from my earliest recollections. Like my earliest childhood memories are of my mom being sick. You know, she had her gallbladder removed very, very early and stuff like that. And I just had this sneaky suspicion that like better food, exercise, could lead to better outcomes. So I, I was interested in kind of health and performance from, you know, like kind of earliest age, uh, was a California state powerlifting champion, got into uh, Thai boxing and jujitsu pretty early on. And, um, you know, it, it led to an undergrad in biochemistry. And then I was kind of looking at, at either medical school or research track or maybe an MD, PhD, combined track, but I was experimenting with my diet along the way. And part of that experimentation was tinkering with a, a very low fat, high carb vegan diet. And I don't think that that was the sole cause of my problems. I was living in Seattle in a basement apartment. I didn't, I hadn't seen the sun in ages. I was eating a diet that definitely doesn't work well for me. 
glycemically or like immunologically. I had celiac disease that I didn't know about, like on and on and on. But looking back, like every single thing I was doing was probably bad for where I was. I ended up developing ulcerative colitis so bad that I'm about 160, 165 pounds right now. And at my low web of ulcerative colitis, I was like 125, 130 and really, really sick, like facing a bowel resection, um, immunosuppressant drugs. And I knew enough about medicine at that point that I, I was like, this is, this is a terrible outcome as things go forward. Like I, this just doesn't end well. And it was right around this time that actually my mom's rheumatologist was doing some, some screening on her and they figured out she had celiac disease and that my mom was reactive to grains, legumes, and dairy. And she was telling me this on the phone and I was kind of like, man, grains, legumes, and dairy. And because I was vegan at the time, I'm like, okay, I kind of get the no dairy thing, but grains and legumes, like what on earth do you eat if you don't eat like grains and legumes, you know? And I was just kind of free associating. This is in 1998. And I don't know how the term got into my head. Like as a kid, I was really fascinated with evolutionary biology. Like I read a bunch of Richard Dawkins early books and it was just something that was part of my worldview. And this idea of a paleolithic diet popped into my head. And I don't know where I had heard of it, but it was just basically this understanding that you had the, the paleolithic when humans lived as hunter-gatherers and then the neolithic and then transition into you know more modern times. But I went into the house, turned on the internet, which was not much uh, slower than my internet here in rural Montana <laughs> right now, but, uh, you know, waited for the dial-up to do its thing. And there was this new search engine called Google. And into Google, I put the term Paleolithic diet. And there wasn't a ton there, but it was interesting. The, what I found really suggested two, two big areas of problems with the, the Neolithic diet, the agricultural revolution, kind of a degree of carbohydrate intake that wasn't well-suited for, for maybe most humans or under most circumstances. And then an immunological problem that a bunch of these, these Neolithic novel foods caused GI upset and, and problems and, and tended to promote autoimmune conditions. So as I started researching that, I'm like, man, this really describes what I have going on. Like I was on a blood sugar roller coaster all the time. I had all these gut issues, depression. It's pretty rough shape. So I was like, well... I've got nothing to lose. And uh, there were no paleo diet books around. So the thing that was recommended that was kind of the closest was an Atkins book. So I went and bought an Atkins book. And interestingly, like his book talked about like GERD and neurological stuff. Like it's interesting how many things Atkins was actually aware of that were being addressed via low carb that he gets no attribution for. Like he, he was really a, a remarkably astute clinician and, and was well aware that, you know, modifying carbohydrate intake had really broad ranging beneficial effects for at least some people. And so I, I changed over to this kind of lowish carb paleo type diet. And it, it, you know, long and short is it saved my life. And it was, uh, you know, not long on the heels of that. That one, when, when that happened, I decided I did not want to go to medical school. I looked and looked for kind of evolutionary biology related research in this kind of nutrition area. And there were no Dom Diagostinos. There were no Rhonda Patricks at that point. Like there was no one to do this type of work with. Like it was, uh, it would have been very tangential to enter into a, a PT program and be able to, to get something cool going on. And so I was still thinking about a PhD track, but was still spending a lot of my time when I should have been running a, a GCMS for uh, 
a cancer research center just casting around on the internet. And I found this weird workout called CrossFit. And I thought it was kind of cool. And my buddy, Dave Warner, who's a retired Navy SEAL, he and I started doing this workout and uh, in his garage. Within about three months, we had maybe 15 people that we were training out of there. And I reached out to the Glassmans and I was like, hey, we really like this stuff. We, we want to open a gym. We want to call it CrossFit. Can we do that? And they were like, yeah, go be achieved, do it. And that was CrossFit North. That was the first CrossFit affiliate in the world. And then I had a chance to move down to Chico, California, not long after that and opened up what was then the fourth CrossFit affiliate, CrossFit NorCal, NorCal Strength and Conditioning. And I just kind of got plugged into that scene. And I started tinkering with these kind of low-carb paleo type diets with a ton of people over time, you know, police, military, and fire, people trying to do well within CrossFit. But I really, my niche, the people that I really liked serving were the people like me that had really complex health issues that had run the complete gamut of modern medicine and were still sick, still needed help. And so, the, you know, even though it's, it's kind of cool to work with elite athletes and, and different folks, I, my bread and butter, as it were, is working with folks that are are like me, like really problematic, complex cases that nothing else would work for and trying to get this kind of evolutionary approach to diet, lifestyle, community to gel for them was kind of my, my life's work. Very cool. Yeah, the progression is, is awesome and admirable. Now, we have a problem in, in this day and age, there's too much information. Back in the day, not enough information. Now it's like, hey, you got to do keto. No, you got to do paleo. What about carnivore? What about the vegan diet? And then even with, if you go one avenue, one, one approach, there's so many different variations of that. So how does somebody who's on Dr. Google or YouTube University cut through all that noise? What are some things we should pay attention to and some red flags like this person doesn't know what they're talking about? Man, it's honestly kind, kind of tough. If you have a raw beginner, they need basics. Like they need really basic stuff. You know, like I think a commonality between keto and paleo and, and uh, carnivore is kind of protein-centric element. Although certain segments of keto got really nervous about protein because mTOR and, and cancer and all, all this type of stuff. I think they kind of went a little, little wacky and overboard with it. But, uh, you know, it's kind of protein-centric. And so you've got this kind of simple story there. But then as people get in and start doing things, hopefully the 80% prescription works. You know, so like I've, I've got my Wired to Eat book, which is much more nuanced. It provides like eight different avenues for people to figure out who they are and what they're doing. And it did pretty well. But my Paleo Solution book, which offered one solution, do this, do nothing else, was way more helpful. And providing nuance to people, I think, confuses them and challenge you know and it's challenging in its own right but what ends up happening is these different camps take these simple heuristics these simple stories of you know just reduce carbohydrate below 30 grams of effective carbs a day and your goal that works in a lot of cases but it doesn't work in all cases like there's a lot of nuance there but if we take something and write it into stone religious doctrine around it then we have no ability to customize so you know, when you're in that, I guess, kind of big picture information gathering story, maybe it's valuable to look for a variety of people that, you know, this individual serves that, you know, if they focus on figure competitors that have already been successful in figure competition, but they just want to ratchet them up to another level. I don't know if they're your best whistle stop for like your first foray into 
changing your nutrition. Maybe it is. I, I, I don't know. But I guess I would look for somebody that maybe has a North Star, they have an orienting framework, but they clearly can have some flexibility about branching into other areas and being able to, to customize because we need to start things off very simply, very basic for people because they can be overwhelmed. But then we can't let that become the only paradigm that permeates a topic. You know, if, if uh, somebody gets great resolution of GI issues with carnivore, but then they find that they have much better jujitsu performance with some honey and fruit and everything else being equal, they're just as healthy, then we can't get wrapped around the axle of like, oh my God, plants are trying to kill me and honey is sugar. You know, it's like the, the clinical outcome shows us that it's, it's beneficial. So I don't know if that was a good answer, but that's, that's the one I've, I've got. Yeah. No, it's a great answer, Rob. No, protein, uh, the fundamentals, look at the, the track record and some of their client testimonials, patient testimonials, and see if that fits what you want to accomplish. I think that's great advice. My viewpoint on keto, I, I've been dogmatic before, back in 2012, when I was a vegan for a year and a half. I was very dogmatic, telling all my friends, you're drinking dairy, what are you doing? You're killing yourself. Like you're, you're contributing to the destruction of the planet Earth. And I was just very, very much misinformed, like a, a lot of people are, which you do a really good job at informing them. So I put myself in this dogmatic box of veganism for a year and a half, and I realized I don't feel great. And that's when I started doing CrossFit, and I was suffering at CrossFit. And if you can imagine, somebody who does CrossFit and somebody who's a vegan, what do they both have in common? They can't stop talking about <laughs> CrossFit and vegan. <laughs> it's like the number one rule, right? Tell everybody you do both of those things. So I eventually at that point started researching uh, ketosis and intermittent fasting. And, and it, it made a lot of sense to me that the, our ancestors did this. And so did they, they did a paleolithic approach. So at that point, I transitioned away, did lab work, lab work verified that I was feeling what I was feeling. And then that's when I started tinkering with keto and, and fasting and even paleo. So here's the reason I'm explaining this. Now I teach keto. My company is Keto Camp. I have a book called, called Keto Flex. However, I am not one of those dogmatic keto people who think you got to do keto for the rest of your life. I actually think we could take somebody who's a sugar burner, highly inflammatory, teach them to become fat adapted and then keto adapted. And then at that point, they have this metabolic flexibility and we start flexing in and out of ketosis. Hey, Keto Camper, I want to just pause for a second and tell you about my favorite drink for metabolic health. On this podcast, we talk about the importance of metabolic health, metabolic flexibility. Well, this is called Good Idea, and it is a great idea if you are trying to reduce blood sugar and keep your insulin levels in a healthy range. It has zero calories, zero sweeteners, and none of the junk ingredients, and it tastes like a lightly sparkling water. I call it a functional sparkling water because it has been clinically tested and shown to reduce blood sugar spikes after a meal. It contains a blend of amino acids and chromium piclinate. Together, they slow gastric emptying and increase insulin sensitivity, allowing a steady release of glucose in the bloodstream where it can be transferred into the cells for fuel. It also contains zinc and potassium as an added benefit. They hooked you all up with a special coupon code. So all you need to do is head over to goodidea.us and apply the coupon code BEN, that is B-E-N, at checkout at goodidea.us. I'm going to drop that link in the podcast notes along with the coupon code. All right, let's get back to this episode. 
So I love that. I also love the carnivore approach. I love the paleo approach. But my point is this. When we start to change the foods that we eat and change our routine, that forces an adaptation, right? Hormesis. And sometimes it's the change that's even more important than what you're changing to. Does that make sense, Rob? Yeah. I mean, in, in scientific terms, we call that a delta. It's a difference. And oftentimes achieving a delta is more important than what the previous baseline was because we just need some degree of adaptation and, and shifting to really make something meaningful. And I, I think that this is where like some modern diets are problematic because we end up with sometimes too much delta, you know, blood sugar near 200 that then crashes and the brain doesn't like stuff like that, but creating that metabolic flexibility so that those deltas drive um, adaptation and, and drive some, some stress response but it isn't so profound that it's becoming pathological. Yeah, I'm, I'm completely signed up on that. Yeah. So I heard you say, I think it was with uh, our friend, Dr. Jockers, um, who loved Dr. David Jockers. Uh, keto can be awesome for some people and a train wreck for others. I want to focus on, on the latter. Like, What are some things you've seen as keto being a train wreck? What do you mean by that? And what are some of the, the issues you've seen with keto in some people? Yeah, it, and you know, even... It's funny, like before this uh, sodium and electrolyte topic really got fleshed out for me, which uh, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor, the founders of Keto Gains, really put this electrolyte topic like front and center for me. I was probably even more hesitant with, you know, like women, perimenopausal women, um, glycolytic-based athletes and and whatnot, Um but I think that a lot of the problems that people experience is just kind of inadequate sodium intake, for not infrequently. And so I think a lot of those problems that, that we usually ascribe to low-carb and keto are, are fixed with that. And then another layer of this story is just that for a desk-bound like computer programmer, keto is probably going to be, it, it's going to mean like 30 to 50 grams of effective carbohydrate as, as a max. And, and uh, there's kind of upper ceiling to it. For a hard charging athlete, like a CrossFit Games hopeful or jujitsu practitioner or something like that, that individual on hard training days may remain ketotic despite eating 200 grams of carbohydrate per day. And so I think that some of that, that train wreck effect is someone there's something that I've observed that, and it's interesting, it kind of makes sense. Someone who's pretty fit and active, they will hear a story of someone that loses 150 pounds on keto. And it's like, wow, it's amazing, like life transforming. There's such an amazing transformation. Well, how did you do that? Well, I ate 30 grams of effective carbohydrate a day. I got a gram of, you know, protein per pound of lean body mass. I filled in fat for, you know, the, the remaining deal. And it was just magic and it was effortless. And then this, say, like CrossFit Games hopeful, they're like, well, I want to be a little bit leaner. And so I'm going to do that. If it works to lose 150 pounds, clearly it would be a great solution for like leaning out five pounds of body fat. But that may not be the case. This person might benefit from, you know, getting that 50, 75, 125 grams of carbs because of the glycolytic nature of, of what they're doing but yet they're still ketotic. So I think that those are a lot of the places that, that people could run afoul of like looking at a, a classically formulated ketogenic diet versus a, a modified Atkins, but both of those are still quite low carb. 
and then not really extrapolating to what the work output is that they're doing and, and realizing that they could still garner all the benefits of keto, but eating a, a degree of carbohydrate intake that may be much higher, but it's because of the volume and the intensity of the training they're doing. Above and beyond that, I think they're just uh, similar to there's some people that a, a vegan diet or like a very fiber rich diet is just not going to work for those individuals. I think there, you know, we have to acknowledge that there's probably some folks out there that like maybe their lipolytic enzymes are just not super robust. Like they just don't produce adequate levels of bile salts to absorb all the fat that they consume and, and whatnot. Or maybe it, it, you know, just doesn't socially click for them. And so we have to find some sort of a, a different, you know, way to navigate all that. But it, it's funny. Um, I think being aware of ways to customize keto, including adequate sodium intake, I think addresses a lot of those like keto train wreck kind of kind of scenarios that happen so much out in the interwebs. I agree. And I want to talk more about that and the relationship between keeping your electrolytes up and how that relates to your blood sugars, and even cravings, how, how sometimes those signals could get mixed up. But before I, we get into that, you're so right. When somebody is eating a standard American diet, 300, 400 grams of carbs a day, of course, they're going to be spiking a lot of insulin, retaining a lot of water, which is why they feel bloated and look bloated. Now they're dropping their carbs. Some people do it really fast. They go cold turkey. I don't personally like that approach. But then you have this release of excess water and the kidneys releasing excess water, electrolytes being released. And if you don't replenish it strategically, you get what's called the keto flu, which is really these carbohydrate withdrawal symptoms. So if you could get those electrolytes up and be really consistent with them, you shouldn't have to get the keto flu. I mean, when I take people through a protocol, it's really rare that somebody will get that unless they don't listen to the advice of slowly decreasing the carbs. So how important is it for somebody doing keto or not, but let's focus on keto. How important is it to keep those electrolytes up and what does it do to help with sugar cravings and with glucose balance? Man, it, if one does not want to suffer terribly, then it's kind of a non-negotiable feature to get the electrolytes, in particular, the sodium on point. And if you dig around a little bit in literature, even looking at things like the zone, which is more of kind of a Mediterranean diet kind of approach, there are people that complain about the lethargy and the fatigue, and you dig a little further and it's like, well, if you make sure to take adequate sodium, then you don't have these problems. And And this is something that, you know, Zone diet for me is it's recommending, I don't know, 150 grams of carbs, but you know, like three to five X what would be recommended for like a baseline ketogenic diet. But I think any move towards a minimally processed whole food diet, people are going to experience that diuresis. They're going to experience that naturesis of fasting where they lose the water, lose the sodium, and they're going to feel like garbage. And Sometimes it writes itself, but what I find is a lot of people, particularly if they're they're fairly active, they live in a hot, humid environment or something like that, like their base level of sodium intake just needs to be higher than what they are are oftentimes thinking. And the irony with that though is that if you're eating a minimally processed diet, your sweet potatoes or your almonds, unless they're salted, they don't come with salt, you know, and so you need to add that or you need to make sure it's a a salted variety. And that's where I think things like almonds and salami, different types of canned fish, like they come with a, a significant amount of salt with it. And so I think that's kind of a slick way to, to deal with that. But uh, for the transition, I mean, what people are really experiencing is this electrolyte imbalance that is very similar to what one feels when they're hungover. So 
hangovers are like the worst thing in the world, you know, and, and you want to do anything you can to avoid it, of course, other than stopping drinking, you know, but what folks oftentimes notice, like if they have some salty food or they, you know, they're licking the salt off the rim of the margarita and all that type of stuff, then they, they end up not having as, as bad of a, a hangover. And it's not dissimilar that if folks are able to get adequate sodium, either dietary or supplemental sources, they notice that they just feel much better in that transition phase. But then typically in the maintenance phase, they find that they benefit from some elevated sodium intake too, again, whether it's dietary or supplemental. And you developed uh, last few years a product, Element, LMNT, uh, LMNT, yes. And they are, it's, tell me about the formulation of it. I see 1,000 milligrams, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. Why did you choose those specific ratios? What's the science behind this? I, would, I don't know if it's science, but empirically, we looked at the, the diet records of about 300 people that were in the, the keto gains community, and they were really diligently logging all of their food, all their, you know, the sodium sources and whatnot. And we, we recognize that within um, low carb circles, like if one goes to a dietitian to be put on a, a ketogenic diet, the dietitian will make sure that the individual gets at least five grams of sodium per day because of this understanding of the nature of, of fasting. So we knew that five grams per day was like a minimum benchmark. We are not negotiating with anything less than that. And so we looked at where people played out. And also we had some, some potassium levels and some magnesium levels that we wanted to hit. And if people were mainly eating a whole food-based kind of paleo keto type of diet, then they tended to get adequate calcium. So we didn't really need to, to supplement that. They were a little skinny on magnesium, skinnier still on potassium, and they were really woefully deficient on sodium. And so that ratio really reflects just trying to put a Band-Aid on what we aren't getting from a minimally processed whole food, lower carb diet. And that that's really where the, where the formulation came from. And they, they're pretty delicious. I mean, you have different flavors, watermelon. I have uh, this one comes with citrus, raspberry and orange salt. So you guys did a great job with it. I, I throw it into my bottle of hydrogen water and I drink it throughout the day. Nice. Uh, we're going to put a link for, for this uh, to get for the keto campers to get this in the podcast notes down below. What about cravings for sugar? If somebody has a salt sodium deficiency, will that increase their, their sugar cravings, carb cravings? Yeah, it certainly can. And like cravings in general, and I, I had forgot to address that, but within definitely carnivore world, but beyond that, people talk about like the protein leverage hypothesis and how important it is to get adequate protein to drive satiety signals. Woven into that story is this thing called sodium appetite, which is this observation that most organisms seek out sodium sources because those sodium sources usually also go with fairly nutrient-dense and also protein-dense foods. And so there does seem to be some satiety benefit to achieving adequate sodium because within adequate sodium, we, we tend to still continue seeking other foods. And there's kind of a double-edged sword to that, though, because the place that people get most sodium in the modern diet is from processed foods. And the, the sodium added to processed foods arguably enhances palatability and facilitates overeating in that circumstance. So there's kind of an interesting, you know, paradoxical nature to, to that whole thing. But the, 
there, there is some good research that suggests that people, and just anecdotally, like if folks are trying to do like some time restricted eating, if they do something like, you know, pickle juice or salt water or like element or something like that, that it really seems to mitigate the hunger between meals so that they can stick with that program a lot easier. I've seen that anecdotally as well. And I even put in some salt in my uh, coffee because coffee will cause you to lose even uh, some more electrolytes. So replenishing it with your, I like a salty, fatty coffee and that holds me over in the morning. Yeah. Uh, do you do the same, Rob? I do. I throw our, um, our chocolate salt in some coffee and a little bit of whole cream and it ends up being like a, a salty mocha, like a, a salted it's not caramel, but, you know, like a, a chocolate salt mocha. And then uh, more recently, I just tinkered with it. I really like black tea. And I started putting the orange or the raspberry in black tea. And I, I just absolutely love it. So I'll, I'll do both of those in, in more of like a traditional hot beverage kind of scenario. And they're really good. Wow. I got to try the chocolate one now in my coffee. I'll let you know how it goes. Are, it, are there it's any? pretty legit. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds delicious. Stress is a common factor that affects everyone in today's fast-paced world, leading to various health issues including heart problems, inflammation, obesity, and mental illness. While most people focus on finding relief through meditation or trips to the spa, what if the root cause of stress is actually a deficiency in a key nutrient? Introducing Magnesium Breakthrough the ultimate magnesium supplement that offers the full spectrum of all seven types of magnesium, specially formulated to reach every tissue in your body for maximum health benefits. This one-of-a-kind product is designed to reverse low levels of magnesium, which could be causing a multitude of health problems. But what sets magnesium breakthrough apart is its ability to impact the release of stress hormones like cortisol and block the activity of more stimulating neurotransmitters leading to a more peaceful and restful state. This means that this supplement acts like a break on your body's nervous system, helping to calm and soothe, promoting a better quality of life. Simply go to magbreakthrough.com slash ketocamp, get 10% off Magnesium Breakthrough with the coupon code KETOCAMP10. And for a limited time, only if you buy three bottles, you can get exciting gifts with purchases like blue light blocking glasses and more. This is a limited time offer for select orders. So Keto Camper, what are you waiting for? Go to magbreakthrough.com slash ketocamp. Make sure you use the code KETOCAMP10 at checkout. We'll drop that info down below in the podcast notes. So we spoke about the things that can happen if you have not enough sodium, not enough electrolytes. What if you overdo it with electrolytes? Heart palpitations? I mean, what are some of the things that we might pay attention to for overdoing it with electrolytes? You know, generally the heart palpitations we see from too little sodium. And so we'll see uh, inadequate fluid volume. And so we have kind of a... a hypovolemic state, and this is where the individual might go from seated to standing, and they get dizzy, you, you know, upon doing that. It's interesting when, when we've been digging around on the literature on trying to figure out the pathophysiology of overconsumption, the, the first and most common thing if people really overdo electrolytes is uh, disaster pants, like it's, it's a, <laughs> a dash to the bathroom. And beyond that, what's interesting is an over 
So long as the individual is not insulin resistant or insulin resistant and a sodium sensitive hyper responder, which about 1% of the population falls into that hyper responder category, you don't see much of a change in blood pressure and the kidneys will, will tend to filter the excess sodium 15, 20 minutes and you're back to a baseline. So I don't see, at least so far, like we haven't seen really significant issues around that. It's worth mentioning there are some cultures like the Japanese culture has traditionally consumed 10 to 15 grams of sodium per day as, as part of the, the background noise of their, their diet. And the average intake in the United States is, is recommended to be below 2 grams, and it's about 2.5 grams. And until the Japanese started really experiencing Western processed foods, their rates of cardiovascular disease, stroke, were, were you know, lower than what we would see here. So Again, so long as we don't have a hyperinsulinemic state, an insulin resistant state, I don't think that the sodium ends up being that potentially dangerous element to the overall diet. And then even that, that said, if we are insulin resistant, low sodium diets don't really help. Like that's been pretty well established. Like it'll bring uh, blood pressure down a couple of points, but it's not all that impressive. Whereas keto reduces blood pressure in most people. Fasting reduces blood pressure in everyone. I mean, there is nobody that doesn't experience really profound, significant reductions in blood pressure from some degree of uh, extended fasting, you know, even out about beyond 24 hours. So I really think that those are all like metabolically driven issues that need to be resolved. And, and so, you know, if you are insulin resistant and hypertensive, throwing a bunch of sodium on top of that is not going to help things. But it's also not really restricting sodium significantly is not really the spot that you're going to fix things either. Well said. How do you know? What, what test do you do to find out if you're a hyper responder? Is it like a genetic test, a DNA test? You could do that. But I mean, really, you, you are the person with uh, uh, maybe you're on the young side, but you have really significantly elevated blood pressure. Like that, uh, uh, hypertension, okay. blood pressure is really going to be the thing that, that alerts you to that. Yeah. Okay. I want to get into your last two books, Wired to Eat and Sacred Cow. So let's start with Wired to Eat. Fantastic book. And I've seen you give some really great, great lectures on it. And I remember you giving a lecture, I think it was at Paleo FX, possibly, about um, the, what was it, the Dorito roulette, how the, 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 the chips and how, like, share that story and how they masterfully, these scientists crafted that chip to make it hyper palatable. Yeah, it, it, so there's this new product called the Dorito roulette. And basically what happens in this bag, it, it, all of the Doritos are hot, but they vary in heat. Like some of them are mildly hot, some of them medium, and then one random chip here and there, it like burn your face off hot, like super, super hot. And when I was looking at that, I was like, oh my God, like these guys really understand like palate fatigue and novelty at this super high level. And so I dug around and it was, um, who owns Doritos? Might be Nabisco. I, I, I forget who it was, but I, I found like a customer service email and I wrote in, I really didn't expect to get a uh, ping back, but I'm like, hey, I'm a food researcher, and I, I was just kind of wondering what is the frequency of the hot, super hot chip relative to the other chips? Like, is it a little bit of this this kind of power law thing? And again, didn't expect any feedback from this at all or any you know response. Got a response, and the gal was super nice. She's like, hey, first, 
the folks in the lab are huge fans of your work, you know? And I was like, oh, shit. You know, like the, the, <laughs> the evil empire might be like using my, my material to get some insight into stuff. And they were so tickled that you had figured out that there was a power law distribution around these, these you know, chips. And so with the power laws are these, these inverse exponentials and the infrequent but highly intense experience, whether it's exercise or drug use or food, is very, very addictive. Like it, it entrains kind of a, an addictive kind of process. And so the way that you, you would experience this bag, you know, it, there's an anticipation. It tastes really good. You know, when you start eating hot food, you just want to eat more of the hot food. Well, the way that this breaks up, it's like one's kind of marginally like, ah, that was okay. But man, I wonder what the next one is. And it gets this anticipatory thing going on with the dopamine. And so it really makes it remarkably addictive. And it was just fascinating that this topic is really well understood within, say, like food manufacturers, like, they get evolutionary psychology, they get the neuroregulation of appetite. None of this stuff is controversial within these circles, like they seem to be really well steeped in it. But if you went to 99 dietitians out of 100, 99 physicians out of 100 mentioned this stuff, they would look at you like you had six heads or like neuroregulation of appetite. Like, you know, what is that? Just, you know, eat less, move more and, and it's done, you know, not considering that like millions of dollars and all this research is gone and, and not just the research, but using the evolutionary biology framework to be able to ask the right questions. How do we get people to eat more food from an evolutionary framework? Well, we need some sort of randomness of exposure. We need some sort of anticipated but unpredictable intense experience and like you you plug all these things in there and then you you know you spin up some different batches and see which one you know people eat the most of in 30 minutes and and you've got a blockbuster there so that that stuff like that is just really powerful to me and it it kind of cuts through the dietary wars in a lot of way like i think all else being equal so long as people eat adequate protein they can usually figure out a higher or lower carb way of managing things. People like me, I just seem to have better appetite control with lower carb. I, I hit a threshold above which I, I just get really hungry and more consistently hungry with, with higher carb. But this palate fatigue and, and uh, recognition of the neuroregulation of appetite, I think it just kind of, it's not so much about low carb. It's not so much about high carb. You know, there is individual distinctions in that, but I think it recognizes that protein is highly satiating. Different people will respond differently to the remaining macronutrients, and we just have to cater things to work for, for folks under those circumstances. Yeah, it's fascinating that Dorito share, because there are very smart scientists who understand how the brain, how the body works, and they're using it kind of against us to uh, make a big profit. So, I mean, kudos to them for their research, but we don't want to contribute to that. And, and you always talk about, you know, we vote with our dollars, right? We could direct that and they wouldn't fund these and, and, and have such a, a Franken food mafia going right now. I, I like that you talked about focusing on protein. That's something I'm big on. Even doing keto, you know, the gluconeogenesis is not something that we're, we're afraid of here at Keto Camp. But you had mentioned that the variability of glucose response from carbohydrates, it's so variable. And you've done some experiments 
and you've noticed some different things. And you also have like a seven-day carb test to kind of see what is going on with carbohydrates. So could you explain some of the tests you've done on yourself and your wife and then that seven-day carb test? Yeah, and all of this came out of research that came from the Weizmann Institute in Israel. And these folks did a fascinating study where they had a, a thousand people where they did a full genetic screen, gut microbiome. They put a CGM on these folks. They did all the lipidology and everything. And then they started feeding these people different meals and also specific carbohydrates. And what they found is that the, the, the glycemic response was all over the map. Like one person would eat white bread and get, it, it looked like they consumed water. Like their blood glucose didn't change at all. And then that a different person would eat white bread and it would spike to 190. And, you know, somebody else would eat a banana and have very little change. Another person, a banana caused a huge change. So it, and it suggested that there were some gut microbiome changes and genetic issues that all came together that would modify like the individual glycemic response that people had. And by and large, what they figured out is if people kept their glycemic load within certain parameters, if the blood sugar didn't spike too high and then crash too low, that people did pretty good on whatever it was that they were doing. And so this was kind of an interesting way of testing people. And if their body did terribly with carbs in general, or like some specific carbs in particular, and then you as a coach are getting ready to recommend what they're going to embark on, it's like, I think kind of a low carb diet is what's going to work. And if they're freaking out about it, it's like, well, here's what your response is. And this is why you're hungry all the time. And, you know, so it decoupled the, the news from the coach. It's kind of like, Hey, this is your body. It's I, I didn't do this. You, you did it. And, you know, we're, we're working together. So here's what we're going to do. And if we get you more metabolically flexible, maybe we can roll this stuff back in. Or maybe instead of a full serving of white rice, you do a quarter of a serving of white rice, you know, and some mitigating strategies like that. And, you know, my wife and I, we did some side-by-side -side comparison. She's a good 30 pounds lighter than I am, but we would both eat, you know, 50 grams of carbs from white rice. And because she's so much lighter than I am, you would assume her blood sugar would be higher, but hers would peak at like 115 and then go back down really, you know, easy up, easy down. Mine would go to 190 and then with a crater and I'd feel horrible on the up and horrible on the down. And it, it, uh, it just kind of reconfirmed that for me, like other than really targeted periods, carbs aren't a great option for me. I have to be really smart and kind of mindful about the, the planning and the types and, you know, all that. And uh, it, it's been a really valuable tool, mainly for coaches. Like when people are working with other people, they find that this is an amazing screening technique particularly on the beginning, but then it's kind of cool. Also, you get people lifting weights, they're doing some intervals, they just get more leaned out and hopefully more metabolically flexible. And then you go back and retest those carbs. And oftentimes, they're, they're markedly better. And then folks can kind of figure out, oh, I can, I can three days a week, I'll sneak in a little bit of rice here and there and stuff like that. And they've got a more, lot more latitude with what they're doing in that way. And it's very, you know, it's empirical, it's right in front of them, they can see what the results are. Do you recommend testing the glucose with a CGM or is a finger prick going to be good enough? CGM is going to be better really because, or the, the finger prick is going to be better because the CGM gives trends, but it's not great on like 
pinpoint moment. So you you might be able to pull out what you want with the CGM, but I really think a finger prick is going to be more valuable and you would do a fasted baseline, you know, right before eating one hour, two hours. And, and uh, that usually gives you some pretty good feedback on it. So you would do just to give the audience like some practical steps, you would have a finger prick machine. A lot of my audience have like keto mojo, you would have a meal. Uh, well, you would test your glucose before you have that meal. Let's see what your fasting glucose is. Let's say it's 85. Great. You'd have your meal. And then one hour postprandial, you'd test your glucose again. And ideally, we want to see that not go above 120, which is a good response. It, it, and if you see it above like 140, then something in that meal, it's not agreeing with your physiology at that moment. Is that a good way to test? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. That, that's yeah. good. That, and and uh, if, if folks poke around the interwebs, they just go Rob Wolf seven day carb test. I have a free how to out there somewhere. I'm not, I think it's on my website, but it, it, they, folks can track that down and it walks you through exactly how to do it. We'll put that in the show notes. We have Rachel we'll put it together for you. Uh, last thing we want to talk about before we wrap up the conversation, I, I'm not sure where you are in your stance with fasting. I've I've heard you say you're not too big on fasting in the past. I mean, I know that you use it as a tool, but it is a stressor to the body, and I and I get that. I'm probably more of a, a fan of fasting than you, but I, I want to kind of hear where you're at currently with your thought process of fasting, and I want to relate excessive fasting, which I'm not a fan of, to the hay flick limit. So, can you talk about that? Yeah, um, that's a lot to unpack. I'll try to uh, try to be <laughs> concise on that. Almost any question that that someone asks, you know, should I fast or should I do this? It's always very goal driven. Like, what do you want to do? And, you know, what do you want to do? And where are you now? And I think that fasting can be a, or time restricted eating can be a wonderful tool for inducing some calorie control. Uh, and, you know, if you have some folks that, uh, it, it, when it's all said and done, um, you know, if we ever get on top of like this, this uh, diabetes epidemic could very well be that some degree of time restricted eating is what wins, or at least it gets the most people moving the most favorable direction. Because telling people to eat less doesn't work. Um, telling people go vegan or go paleo. There's a, a marginal fringe of people that will kick the tires on that. But by and large, that that doesn't work over the long haul either. There are some people that, that buy into it long term, but not that many. There are a lot of people that if you tell them, hey, eat whatever you want, but eat between 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. They're like, I can do that. I can totally do that, you know? And then as they start getting a little healthier, like, hey, in that period of time, cut out all liquid sugars. If you have a soda, make sure it's a diet soda, don't have juice. And oh, by the way, try to have protein at every one of your meals. And if we got 99% of people doing that, like we, we wouldn't be in this. You, I, I think that we would basically turn the boat on the diabetes epidemic kind of thing. So I think that something like that is really valuable. The bulk of the people, though, that I see doing fasting, they're already in this kind of keto space. They might be in the CrossFit scene and folks are already lean. They're already pretty healthy. And I think that there's a thought that fasting above and beyond what what the health benefits are from being lean and lifting weights and doing some cardio and all that, that there's some magic waiting on the backside of that. And I'm just not convinced that there is. I think, again, it can be a great tool for calorie control. But when I, when I really started digging into this topic, there aren't a lot of studies on this, but 
The bulk of the studies that look at calorie restriction and fasting and its purported benefits in animals, these animals are uniformly obese when fed a standard lab chow diet, even when they try to calorie control these animals. These animals are metabolically sick. They have super high rates of cancer. They develop diabetes. Like They're overweight. They are a westernized human version of what a, a natural mouse would be. There have been a very few studies that look at animals fed a species-appropriate diet and what happens with them, and they live a very long life, um, they, they end up looking like calorie restriction benefits because they're in a, not a natural environment where they're predated and you know all that. So they, they end up living really quite long and well. And then the control side of that is species-appropriate diet, but calorie restricted, similar to what they do with lab food, and these animals die younger. And so that's been kind of a, an, an interesting thing that I've, I've noodled on. And I think that so much of the data around fasting, so much of the data around calorie restriction, we all know that somebody who exercises and eats in a way that they can be lean and strong and healthy, they are shockingly healthier than an obese, sedentary individual, right? I think that that may be all that we're seeing in this story, is that we're taking a critter that's eating a suboptimal diet we're limiting its access to that suboptimal diet, and then we're comparing it to either eating too much of a poor diet or lesser of a poor diet. And I think that that may be like the total story with this. And then the the extension from that is, uh, you know, the the question around the Hayflick limit, which people get really excited around things, uh, you know, autophagy and protein turnover and and uh, uh, apoptosis, and all of that is important. We need that stuff. And in a chronically overfed individual, we have too little of it. But I'm not sold that a lean, healthy individual that's exercising, getting sun on their skin, which there aren't that many of those people, I acknowledge that. But you know, within your and my circle, there's a lot of, of people like that. But uh, once you get pretty lean, once you get pretty healthy, I'm not sure that there's all that much additional upside to be had with extended fasting. And that may, you know, maybe that's 24 hours, maybe that's 72 hours, maybe that's once a month, maybe that's once a quarter. I'm not really too sure on that, but there is this thing lurking out there called the Hayflick limit, which is this recognition that, that eukaryotic cells tend to divide about 50 times. And at, at that, each time they divide, they, they lose a little bit of the telomere, the, the kind of ends of the chromosomes that keep the DNA wound together. And once those telomeres are gone, the cells tend to die. And we want senescent cells, which are cells that are becoming abnormal. We don't want them to hang around super long and have a ton of them because they can be pro-inflammatory. But there's also a reality that senescence is not a binary thing, either yes or no. There are cells that have to become quasi-senescent within our immune system to actually do things like recognizing cancer. And if we don't have those cells in that quasi-senescent state, then we don't get a proper uh, clearance of cancer. We don't recognize cancer. But if we do a really hard fast, it does tend to press the reset button across our cell types, and it will remove all these quasi-senescent cells. But then those cells have to be replaced. And we only have so many stem cells that we can draw from. And I, I, I was working my way through a paper that suggested that the Hayflick limit may not be accurate 
completely accurate in like a living organism that there, you may get more cellular replication than like the 50, you know, cycles. And, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around this thing. But there is still the reality that we, you telomerase is a thing. You would lose telomeres. There's a trade-off between leaving cells around too long so that they become cancerous or senescent versus burning through them all. And what, what another thing that isn't discussed in the fasting circles is that animals that are exposed to really aggressive fasting serially, they tend to die young. And what they die from is total systemic, like multi-organ failure because they have depleted their stem cell pool. Like they've burned through all of the stem cells because they've driven autophagy and you know, this, this cellular turnover at such a high clip that there's nothing left. And that's part of my, my concern around like a really aggressive fasting protocol. And what, what is aggressive? I'm not totally sure. But I'm also just not sure how much, ad again, additional upside there is. Like if somebody was asking, should I add an additional day of fasting per week? I would ask, are you already doing three or four days a week of strength training and some cardio, you know, and some neurologically enriching things like learning music or, or a language or jiu-jitsu or something like that. Like all of those things I feel like are so much more guaranteed to provide benefit, not the least of which is, you know, people do a lot of the fasting and uh, with the thought that they're going to avoid cancer, they're going to avoid neurodegenerative disease. All of that is totally speculative. Like we really don't know if that's helpful. And again, we're comparing like an overfed scenario versus, you know, just an adequately fed scenario. But every single human being is going to face sarcopenia as they age, you know, after the age of about 30, 35, there's a very predictable downward trend in muscle mass, power generation, and adequate protein intake, plus adequate uh, training, you know, resistance training and some cardiovascular training really flattens that curve out, like we still decline with age, but a 90-year-old individual who strength trains can be as physically fit as a 50-year-old who is sedentary. And I mean, that's, it's pretty remarkable, you know? So I don't know if that answered everything or answered more than you wanted, but that's kind of the, the big picture, you know, story of, of how I'm looking at this stuff at this point. At the beginning of 2020, I had a talk that I only got to do at Metabolic Health Summit, and it's called Longevity, Are We Trying Too Hard? And I really unpacked all that stuff, but I, I need to just put it up so that people can check it out because I don't know if I'm ever going on the road again and doing, doing public speaking gigs at this point. Yeah. So it, I do think it's valuable information for people to at least kick the tires on and think about. Yeah, it was a great lecture. I watched it and that's where I came up with the question, the question to ask you. So I do think you should put it online. No, it's a great answer. It's, it's important to have the discussion because fasting could be great. I, I think if you use it the right way, it'll create hormesis, it'll create a positive stress, but then too much of a good thing ends up being a bad thing. And you got to find out where you're at, what are your goals? Like you said, Rob, it's very important. I always talk about how I love autophagy, but we don't want too much autophagy. There's a, there's a healthy balance in those two pathways, mTOR autophagy. And if you could find that sweet spot, stay in that hormetic zone, I think that's where the magic lies. But it's not as simple as saying, yeah, you should do a 24-hour fast it's, or you should do a 36-hour fast. Everybody needs to kind of find that hormetic zone. And that's what you're talking about. It's, it's, it's hard though, Rob, because people want, they'll watch a two-minute clip of my videos and they're like, what about this? What about that? And it's hard to kind of tackle all the nuances in a general video. That's why when we have conversations like this, 
and your books, we go a little bit deeper. So I could appreciate the answer. And it was a great answer. Where's the best place to get your books? And uh, where else can the audience go check you out? Man, uh, robwolf.com is where you can find most of what I'm up to. I do a lot of writing for Element over at drinkelement.com. So like we have a very robust blog presence over there. And we talk about fasting and hormesis and, and this type of stuff over there. So there's some solid resources lurking. Awesome. We'll put you put uh, your social media down below in the notes. We'll put your website. We'll put the Element website down there. Thank you, Rob, for being a pioneer in the space and for your dedication to humanity. We didn't even get into your last your Sacred Cow book, but you're doing a lot of great work to bring light to people and under help them understand, hey, it's not what you think. It's not what the you know mainstream media is telling you. It's actually the complete opposite. So thank you for being a truth teller. Thank you for doing your research. Uh, I look forward to doing another conversation with you in the future. So I want to say thank you. I had a great time today. A huge honor. And anytime you want me to bring down property values, I will come back on the show. So you just, just let me know. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Rob Wolf. Be sure to go down to the show notes and get your Element electrolytes. By the way, I started putting the chocolate sea salt in my coffee. I actually have it right here next to me on my desk. And he's right. It is absolutely delicious. I've been doing it the last few days for me and my fiance. So go get their electrolytes. It's delicious. You can put the chocolate one in your coffee. Uh, they also have other flavors. We have a link for them down below. It's our affiliate link for them down below in the podcast notes. Also, go get his books. We'll put links down below as well. We put timestamps and everything mentioned can be found in the notes down below. If this was a valuable conversation to you, please consider sharing it with a friend, copy and paste the link and text it to somebody. And please leave the Keto Account Podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to the entire episode of the Keto Account Podcast. I'll see you on the next one. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.